welcome back to Talking PFAS podcast. I'm a journalist and your host, Kayleen Bell. If you are joining me for the first time, a very big welcome to you. I want to say thank you so much to my regular listeners for being patient with me while I took an extended break, which unfortunately became longer than I wanted due to a hand injury. I suffered, but I'm very much on the mend now. So thank you for being patient and it's good to have you back. Since learning about this class of chemicals in 2018, I have travelled to many states of Australia and interviewed people in person or over the phone from Oakey, Williamtown, Saltash, Fullerton Cove, Richmond, Catherine, Tasmania, Adelaide, Canberra, Sydney, Perth and Newcastle. This year I hope to visit many more people in many more towns to discuss with residents and others how PFAS chemical contamination has affected their properties and their lives. I've also had the privilege of interviewing many international experts to discuss PFAS from their medical, scientific, remediation, political or expert opinion. I've interviewed some fantastic international guests from California, Sweden, Texas, Washington, Boston, Michigan, Switzerland, Colorado and California. This season I will bring you some more great discussions with Australian and international guests with the one goal being to understand PFAS chemicals better and learn what is new regarding regulations and scientific discoveries about this complex class of compounds. Many experts argue that the persistence of this class of chemicals requires swift action and they recommend banning the whole group of PFAS chemicals. In Australia, a class action between three communities and the Department of Defence settled out of court in 2020 and these communities received a payout of $212 million. So after paying a huge amount of legal fees, the money was divided amongst many thousands of impacted community members. But most, as I understand, and I've not spoken to all, have not received enough compensation to move from their contaminated properties. The class action payout was awarded due to property value losses that residents with contaminated properties had experienced. One of the conditions of the class action, though, was that they could have no future claims against the Department of Defence for PFAS contamination to their properties. However, they can still in the future make a claim against the Department of Defence for PFAS-related health issues. This season, I hope to revisit some people who were involved in the first PFAS class action in Australia. I'll attempt to find out where they are now and whether their lives have changed since the class action settled. This is important because in Australia right now, Shine Lawyers are involved in a further larger PFAS super class action involving communities in Western Australia, Northern Territory, South Australia, Queensland, New South Wales and Victoria against the Department of Defence. Shine Lawyers is seeking compensation for property owners for economic loss. The National Special Counsel, Joshua Alwood, said he estimates up to 40,000 people live in these communities and are affected by these PFAS chemicals. And finally, as Australia is facing an election in 2022, I will also hope to find out what the government intends to do about PFAS more broadly in Australia and how much money they intend to set aside to contribute to PFAS research and remediation or compensation in Australia. Since it's been a while since I put out a new episode, I have put together a little recap of Season 3 and Season 4. 
and I hope you enjoy listening to this bonus episode of Talking PFAS today. I look forward to you joining me for season five of Talking PFAS, which will return on the 29th of March. To begin today's recap is from episode 18. It was a discussion with Professor Chris Higgins from the Department of Civil and Environmental Engineering at the Colorado School of Mine in the US. Chris was visiting Australia in March 2020 to discuss work on a PFAS soil washing project being conducted in Adelaide, South Australia. And Chris was attending a project meeting to discuss that project at Quays in Brisbane. And this interview was conducted there on the 3rd of March 2020. His chemistry background, plus his extensive knowledge of PFAS chemicals, produced a very informative and interesting discussion. So the third dimension of complexity, in my view, is the exposure dimension. So most of the time we're focused on drinking water exposures because that's what's in the news, that's what people hear about, it's in my water, it's in my blood. That is entirely true. If it's in your water, it can get into your blood, uh, depending on the, the individual compound. But it's not all about water exposure. We can also be exposed to these compounds through the fish we eat, through the milk we drink or the eggs we eat, in some cases through the lettuce we eat. Uh, some of the compounds that accumulate in your fish don't accumulate in your lettuce, but the compounds that accumulate in your lettuce don't accumulate in your fish. So you can be exposed through a wide variety of foods that you might consume, so it's not just the water, but it's also we work and, and live in environments where these coatings have, have been present, and we still don't quite understand how use of these compounds in consumer products necessarily translates to kind of exposure or your your fast food wrapper how does that get into you if it's in your fast food wrapper but we do know that there's this these associations which are pretty commonly found between eating things like fast food and elevated levels in your blood so when you think about the complexity in terms of exposure it's not just your drinking water it's not just the food it's the materials the food come in and there may also be additional sources of exposure that we just haven't understood yet. Then we had episode 19 with Lisa Marie Toms from the Queensland University of Technology in Brisbane. Lisa has been involved in the human biomonitoring in Australia, looking at a range of contaminants in human blood, including PFAS. The strength of our work on PFAS is our human biomonitoring program and the fact that we have consistently been collecting these samples, which has enabled us to look back in time to a time before there was awareness, community or government awareness of PFAS. And we really hope that we can continue that collection, analysis and archiving of our blood samples. So when and if there is something else of interest, of you know, interest to the community, interest to the government, that we can then use those samples and, and hopefully provide some um, worthwhile information. And then we had episode 20, Dr. Paul Birch, the Science Director of Land and Water, CSIRO in Brisbane. And he discusses the work that CSIRO have done on PFAS in Australia. Well, we've been mainly involved in looking at the fate transport of PFAS contaminants in the environment. And and really what we're interested in is developing models to predict the transport, developing models to predict how it's partitioned in soil, you know, how it moves in groundwater, and then how it's taken up by um, ecoreceptors. So again, we don't really work uh, in the human health uh, domain, but we do work with ecoreceptors, which would be organisms in the environment that might be impacted. Such as? Could you give us an example of some of those ecoreceptors? Oh, they could be anywhere from fish uh, to microorganisms uh, to birds. 
So it's really looking at a whole host of ecoreceptors. Even earthworms, right? Yeah, earthworms are a big one. And so I've done a lot of work, for example, uh, in my career looking at earthworms as an as a important ecoreceptor, mainly because they, as you know, live in the soil, but they also ingest soil. And then chickens eat the earthworms and then produce the eggs. Yeah, that's right. And, and you may know that one of the major PFAS sources in food is actually eggs. Because of the protein, right? Because PFAS love proteins, correct? Yeah, that's correct. Where again, uh, traditionally, the paradigm of organic contaminants was normally thinking about those organic contaminants partitioning to lipids, which would be the fat tissues. Mm. Whereas PFAS mm. has very unique properties in that it partitions to uh, protein. And next we have episode 21, Professor Ian Cousins from the Department of Environmental Science in Stockholm University in Sweden. I am concerned that they are a very diverse class of substances because the definition of PFAS is very broad. So you end up capturing a lot of substances, thousands of substances, and they are very diverse in their behavior. And most people know about PFOS and PFOA and the hexane sulfonate. These are the famous ones studied in Australia, but there are thousands of other substances and most people don't know about these and they are diverse and they, they have all sorts of behavior. Some of them are toxic and some of them, frankly, are not toxic. Some of them will accumulate in your body and some will not, but all of them are persistent. They're either stable themselves or they break down into substances which are stable in the environment and they're really stable. They redefine, you know, environmental stability kind of because we don't really know if they will break down at all because they degrade so slowly. So you know, they, they'll be in an environment for, we don't know how long, you know, centuries. And that is a big concern in itself because if you release something into the environment which shouldn't be there, which is you know, made by us, mankind or you know they're synthetic and they're released into the environment they shouldn't be there and they don't degrade then they will accumulate they will continually accumulate and eventually they'll reach a, a level where they will cause an effect what which we might know about or it could be an unknown effect and then when we do discover that there's not much we can do to actually take the contamination out of the environment again it's there you know for good can't reverse it so that i think is is my concern about the class. It's not really sustainable to use these kind of substances. So we have to really think about alternatives. And then we had episode 22, Juliana Gluget from Zurich, Switzerland, discussing her paper called An Overview of the Uses of PFAS. And there are many PFAS uses listed in that paper that you might find surprising. I started with a small list and it got longer and longer. And at the end, yeah, it took me a year to put everything together, and I think it's now an important work, but it also was a lot of work to put this all together. And how many uses did you find for PFAS? So we found over 200 uses, and I identified over 1,400 chemicals that have been applied in these uses. Now to news from Michigan. In the National Law Review article dated 28th of April 2021, written by Boston attorney John Gardella, of CMBG3 Law. He details information about a PFAS paper mill settlement. Here's attorney John Gardella from Boston to tell us more. So the paper mill one that just settled not just a few days ago was brought in the state of Michigan. And what had happened in uh, Michigan is that there was a paper mill that had been there for almost uh, actually over 100 years. And for many of those years, they were manufacturing paper products that were coated uh, with PFAS so that they could become oil and grease resistant. Now, pursuant to all applicable and allowable licenses and permits at the time, 
in the state, the company had a landfill nearby on an adjacent piece of land that it owned where it would dump the waste from the paper manufacturing process, including sludge and other byproducts that went into the manufacturing process. Now, over time, the problem was that that landfill, when it was created decades ago, was not lined in any way. So the PFAS leached over time from the landfill into the nearby waterway. The town was relatively small. It was about 3,000, 3,500, I believe, citizens brought a lawsuit not too recently, two years ago, saying that the PFAS were at astronomically high levels, well above the limit that the state had set, and that the owner of the landfill was responsible for polluting the environment and that the citizens were entitled to damages. So that one recently settled for 11.9 million U.S. dollars. Next is episode 24. It was an insightful discussion with Boston attorney John Gardella from CMBG3 Law in Boston. If you have any interest at all in PFAS litigation, you don't want to miss this episode. We discuss litigation in detail in Michigan, Alaska, and we touch on recent litigation in Sweden. The initial focus of the litigation several years ago really began as an environmental pollution type of litigation. In other words, most of the lawsuits that you were seeing were municipalities, in other words, towns or states, or even water districts, public or private, the ones that were supplying drinking water to citizens, were filing these lawsuits to try and have the PFAS manufacturers that would be DuPont and 3M in the United States, held responsible for paying for the cleanup costs associated with PFAS and drinking water. And, you know, many of the lawsuits resulted in tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of U.S. dollars in settlements that these cities, states, and water companies could use for remediation efforts, primarily filtering out PFAS and the technology surrounding that. I think more recently what we've seen in the United States is more product lawsuits beginning with respect to PFAS. The initial targets of those lawsuits, quite predictably, probably to all of your listeners, would be the firefighting foams, the AFFF as we call them. Because the product is so ubiquitous and has so much PFAS in it, and it's such a high volume polluter of the environment, So there's, in the state of South Carolina in the United States, there's actually a docket specifically for lawsuits centering around that product. And as of today, there are about 550 lawsuits that sit on that docket that are currently being litigated. But there are numerous other dozens, if not hundreds of other lawsuits throughout the United States as well that don't focus on AFFF specifically. Outside of the AFFF lawsuits here in the U.S., there is an ever-increasing number of lawsuits that do focus on the short-chain or, you know, the so-called Gen X PFAS compounds as well. What are the liabilities asserted generally? Yes, I, I actually think that most of them are asserting almost all the same things. You know, medical monitoring, as we call it in the U.S. here, is something that is a little bit unique and not every state allows it or follows it or permits it, I should say. But it's essentially a way for a state to get funds and compensation to set up a long-term medical program so that the citizens within the area can be followed throughout time to ensure that they're not developing any of the problems that have been found to be associated with PFAS ingestion. And that's one of the most 
common claims nowadays is they're asking the courts to allow them to establish those medical monitoring programs, even in states where that has typically not been allowed before. They're hoping that given the magnitude of the PFAS exposures and levels that we're seeing in people throughout the country and throughout the world, that those medical monitoring programs will be allowed. And beyond the medical monitoring, they are also, yes, asking for property devaluation. They're claiming the PFAS are polluting their land and causing it to lose its value, so they want the difference. And then there are claims that are asserting personal injury to individuals, you know, for testicular cancer, kidney cancer, things like that. And they want to be compensated on an individual level as well. And next was episode 25. It was a discussion with environmental lawyer Claire Smith from Clayton Utes in Sydney. The purpose of our discussion today is just to discuss some commentary that you wrote in March around the new New South Wales EPA ban on PFAS firefighting foams. Yes, so what happened was there was an amendment regulation that was introduced in March and that amended a key piece of EPA regulated legislation called the Protection of Environment Operations General Regulation. And that, as you say, imposes a ban on the use of PFAS substances. And there's three different types of ban. There's a ban on any person discharging PFAS firefighting foam for the purposes of firefighting training or firefighting demonstration. There's a ban on the use of firefighting foams containing PFAS except by relevant authorities in the case of a catastrophic fire. And that's defined as a fire involving a combustible accelerant such as petrol, kerosene, oil, tar, paint or solvent or to extinguish a fire on the watercraft in the state or in prescribed waters. And a relevant authority is Transport for New South Wales, a fire brigade, a rural fire brigade, a community fire unit or a port authority. The third ban relates to a person selling a portable fire extinguisher containing the precursor to PFAS firefighting foam. Could you just clarify, there's a few different dates of when they come into effect Yes, so the ban on firefighting training or firefighting demonstration is already in effect. So that came into effect on the 1st of April and the other two bans come into effect on the 26th of September 2022. What other states or territories in Australia are you aware of have a similar ban? So South Australia already has a similar ban and that was introduced in 2018 and Queensland began regulating PFAS containing firefighting foams and phasing uh, that out from around 2016. What um, stakeholders will be affected by the new regulation? Just anyone who uses firefighting foam? Anyone who uses firefighting foams containing PFAS and anybody who sells uh, PFAS containing firefighting equipment. Obviously, there's a window now for affected businesses to get their house in order. They should be doing an inventory review, seeing if they do have any PFAS containing products, seeing what's out there to replace those products, and also thinking very carefully about the management, storage, and eventual disposal of those PFAS containing substances. And next is episode 26. And this was a discussion with. Rob Inglis from The Examiner, an advocate, newspapers in Hobart. 
and Sharon McClay, who was a candidate for the Animal Justice Party in the recent Tasmanian election. Sharon also has a 30-year history of previously being a professional firefighter for the MFB in Victoria. And Rob Inglis has written some recent articles about PFAS foams in Tasmania after firefighters refused to use foams which contain PFAS. We'll start with Rob Inglis, reporter for The Examiner and Advocate newspaper in Hobart. The headline was fireys ablaze over use of toxic foam in Tasmania and so essentially what happened was the United Firefighters Union, the state branch of the union, sort of came out publicly and really expressed their concerns over the sort of continued use of PFAS foams by the Tasmania Fire Service down here. And so essentially they're calling for the TFS to really allow for um, firefighters to be tested to sort of determine their levels of PFAS that they've been exposed to. And while the TFS is actively transitioning out of using PFAS foams, there are concerns that it's not happening quickly enough. And in terms of the testing idea, they um, aren't keen on it. The TFS, they said, believe they said experts had told them that such tests would have no diagnostic value. You also wrote an article recently in May. That was around the time of the election, wasn't it? It was actually on the day of the election that it was published. Yes, I worked on that just in the couple of days leading up to election day. And what was that one called and what was it about? Yeah, so that one was called Tasmanian Firefighters Refuse to Use PFAS Foam Linked to Cancer. There was quote marks around linked to cancer, obviously, because, well, the jury's still out, I guess, in some respects, in terms of the evidence or the agreement on the evidence. On that second story, just to get the TFS's perspective across, the TFS Deputy Chief Officer Jeff Harper said PFOS and PFOA, the sort of most well-known PFAS chemicals, were no longer used by the TFS. And so he said Tridol is a product used specifically for fighting fuel fires, which are extremely rare, and that um, Tridol contains chemicals that are part of the PFAS group but does not contain PFOS or PFOA. And so then he went on to say uh, some tridol is stored at Cambridge for emergencies and if the nature of a fuel fire requires its use, then it may be used. And he just concluded by saying TFS are developing plans to transition out of all foams that contain PFAS. But as you can see from the stories I've written, the firefighters aren't sort of satisfied by, I suppose, the progress that's being made or, or the rate of progress that's being made in terms of um, really phasing out the use of all PFAS foams. Here's Sharon McClay. And what was the key points that were put forward in that press conference? Key points were that other fire services have stopped using it. The TFS still has stocks of it and they really need to test their firefighters' bloods, as other fire services are doing, decontaminate their appliances and replace the foams with PFAS, with Solberg or other foams that don't have it. It's a very tenacious little beast. And it stays around, as you know, and people cannot keep treating it with such flippant apathy. Sharon, did you decide to run as a candidate because of the PFAS issue? No, but once I found out about it, because I've been a firefighter previously in Victoria for almost 30 years, and I knew that Victoria had stopped using it in 2014, it became a central issue to me because of its potential harms to not just human animals, but all animals in the environment and the way it can get into the food chain and the way it's got a a residual effect. You mean how it bioaccumulates, don't you, when you say residual effect? Yeah, exactly. And its, its potential for harm is too great to be ignored. 
Next is episode 27. It was a discussion I had with Garrett Allison. He's a reporter for MLive and Grand Rapids Press in Michigan. And we're going to start with a little discussion I had with Garrett about a study looking at PFAS chemicals in rain. They found some pretty high concentrations of PFAS in about five sites around the Great Lakes region. And one of the notable finds was that Cleveland, Ohio, which is on uh, Lake Erie, There was a sample where they found a 1,000 parts per trillion of 38 compounds in rainwater collected in Cleveland, and that was over a two-week period in April of this year. It's not the first time researchers have found PFAS in rainwater samples, but it's 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 a surprisingly high number, and it's kind of adding to this body of research showing that PFAS are, uh, are definitely a contaminant that gets moved around through air deposition. Generally, they're finding about 100 to 400 parts per trillion cumulative concentration in their samples, but the Cleveland one, uh, you know, really jumped out. And in episode 28, I have a longer discussion with Garrett Allison from MLive. As an investigative reporter, he's broken many PFAS stories, and his PFAS work has directly influenced state environmental policy and the creation of Michigan's first state-specific drinking water standards for harmful chemicals. Right now in Michigan, there is, I think, 160, 170 sites, uh, PFAS sites of contamination. The first one that was ever discovered was at Wurtsmith Air Force Base in Oscoda, which is, you know, the northeast part of the state on, along Lake Huron. The state found the chemicals there in 2010, and a couple of years later, they issued some fish advisories for the Osaba River and, and nearby wetlands and lakes, and that was really the very first place that this stuff was discovered in Michigan. In fact, that was one of the very first handful of U.S. military sites where the chemicals were ever discovered, right? Now we're at hundreds of U.S. bases in the United States and around the world where they found this stuff, but we're Smith and Oscoda right there in like the first three or four where they ever actually found this stuff. And in Wordsmith and like all the other military sites, it was firefighting foam, AFFF. And so that has been, you know, a long-running, slow-moving cleanup up there in Oscoda. It's still happening. Was there a court case? No, there hasn't been court cases because in the United States, it's very, very almost impossibly difficult to sue the federal government. The the federal government actually needs to give its consent to be sued, or there has to be some sort of act of Congress. Yeah, so to sue the federal government is very difficult, because if it weren't difficult, there would be lots of lawsuits against the Air Force or the Army or the Department of Defense, not just from community members who have been poisoned, but from military service members who were drinking this stuff, were exposed to it through their job. My guest in episode 29 was Boston attorney John Gardella again from CMBG3 Law and we discussed PFAS in cosmetics in the US and Canada. Our discussion focuses on some articles that John published in the National Law Review in June 2021. You recently had another article published in the National Law Review on the 21st of June about PFAS in cosmetics. 
Can you please give the essence of what that article was about? Sure. Well, the article takes a look at two very recent items in the United States that specifically target PFAS issues in cosmetics products. One was a scientific study that examined the presence of PFAS in over-the-counter cosmetics products, while the other was a piece of legislation passed at the federal level that seeks to ban PFAS in cosmetics. So I took a look at both of these items and then explained my thoughts on why this sort of bolsters something I've said for a while now, which is the cosmetics industry in particular, is really one of the top three targets for litigation and even legislative issues in the United States. Why do you place it in the top three, the cosmetic industry, as far as litigation? Well, there's sort of a perfect storm happening in the United States anyway. There is an increased amount of scientific study going on with respect to PFAS specifically with respect to cosmetics, as one of the most recent journal articles shows. And coupled with that, there has been at least one state in the United States, in fact, the biggest one, California, that's already passed a ban on PFAS and cosmetics. So the recent bill that was just passed at the federal level is sort of a second step in that way. But I see other states naturally sort of following along in the lines and passing their own legislation to try and ban PFAS and cosmetics in their own states. So you couple those two things with media presence, which of course picks up on these issues, and citizens become more and more aware of these things. And it sort of creates the opportunity for plaintiff's attorneys to realize this and delve a little more deeply into the science behind that and realize that they may have a class of citizens who potentially could bring lawsuits for personal injury with respect to PFAS and cosmetics. The number of the cosmetic products that are on the market, and I should say in the United States and Canada, since those were the products that were tested, for the majority of the types of products that were tested, lipsticks, foundations, facial products, and things like that, over 50% of them contain some degree of PFAS, which was you know, eye-opening to many. That's a fairly high percentage that's in those products. But the other part that was eye-opening to me in particular was that, you know, there was only one product out of all of them that were tested that actually contained information on the label that it contained some sort of PFAS in it. So 88% of the products that were tested had no such disclosure on, on the product label whatsoever. The recent PFAS study examined 231 cosmetic products sold in the United States and Canada in what did they find, John? Well, they found that 52% of those products contained some degree of PFAS. And within the different cosmetic product types, they broke it down into different categories and they revealed their percentages of how much PFAS were in each of those categories as well. For example, 62% of liquid lipsticks had some degree of PFAS, 63% of foundations had PFAS, and 58% of eye products had some degree of PFAS. Those are just some examples. There were others as well. Certainly to you know citizens, those are high percentages and, and numbers of concern. And in episode 30, my discussion was with Dr. Katie Pouch from Fort Worth, Texas. She's an associate professor at the University of North Texas Health Science Centre. And Dr. Katie Pouch and colleagues published the PFAS Tox database in April 2021. Here's Katie to tell us a little bit more about this useful database. So it's a database that summarizes or kind of catalogs the existing literature on 29 different PFAS. And so these are PFAS beyond PFOA and PFOS PFAS. With these other 
not famous PFAS, like we all know about PFOS and we all know about PFOA and there's been thousands and thousands of studies on these. But with the lesser known chemicals, often people have referred like regulators or government agencies, they've often referred to the fact that there isn't any information out there on the alternatives, but your work would prove otherwise. Would, would you agree with that statement? Absolutely. And that was one of the driving factors in building this because we just kind of couldn't believe that there was nothing. In our first literature search retrieved over 16,000 records just from a PubMed database. 16,000? Yeah. The literature searches retrieved over 16,000. And finally, my special guest in episode 31 was Alyssa Cordner, an environmental sociologist an associate professor in the sociology department at Whitman College, which is in eastern Washington state in the US. And in this episode, we discuss a commentary paper that Alyssa and a team of experts have written called The True Cost of PFAS and the Benefits of Acting Now. This was published in Environment, Science and Technology Journal on the 7th of July. 2021. Uh, Certainly when we think about the cost of drinking water remediation, the cost of PFAS can seem overwhelming, but it's important to put those costs also into conversation with the other costs that are already being experienced and borne by the public, by residents, by governments, whether it's the short and long-term health impacts of drinking contaminated water or eating contaminated food, whether it's the very specific impacts to a particular business or farm, or it's the impacts to uh, state regulatory agencies who are trying to do their work in the face of this contamination. All of these things really call for a strengthened regulatory system that will better enforce existing regulations and develop stronger class-based regulations and laws that will force the internalization of costs of PFAS. Impacted residents have a lot of power, a lot of ability to tell their story, and it's a story that is really resonating in this current moment and that is having a lot of impact in terms of how PFAS will be produced and regulated in the coming years. That's it for today's wrap of season three and four. I'll be back with season five at the end of March. Thanks again for listening. And remember, you can send your questions or feedback to talkingpfas at gmail.com. All information in today's episode is copyright. Please contact me for reuse permissions. Thanks again. See you next time.